Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Criminology Academy podcast, where we are criminally academic. My name is Jen Toslaib. And I'm Jose Sanchez. And today we are speaking with Professor Brendan Lance about his research on hate crimes. Brendan Lance is an assistant professor of criminology and criminal justice and director of the Hate Crime Research and Policy Institute at Florida State University. His research focuses on hate crime, violence, and victimization, and has been funded by the National Science Foundation and Bureau of Justice Statistics, among others. His published work has appeared in a number of research outlets, such as Social Problems, Journal of Research in Crime and Delinquency, Justice Quarterly, and Psychology of Violence. Thank you so much for joining us today, Brandon. Thanks for having me. All right. So just to get started, a brief overview of the episode. We're going to first start with a broad discussion on hate crimes, focusing on what they are, what they look like, and how they're punished. From there, we'll go into a paper that's authored by Brendan on differences between Asians and non-Asians in reporting of victimization during COVID-19 pandemic. And then lastly, we will talk about hate crimes internationally. So Jose, why don't you get us started? Okay, so... Brennan, as is typical of this podcast, we're about to ask you a question that's probably a little too big, but we're going to ask it anyways. Can you tell us what is a hate crime? Yeah. So, I mean, a hate crime from a, a legal standpoint is just any crime motivated by bias towards characteristic of the victim. So most often that's some sort of demographic characteristic, race, religion, ethnicity, national origin, sexual orientation, gender identity and so on. So it's any, it's any crime at all. So it could be, it could be a violent crime, but it also could be, you know, a a property crime or anything, anything like that. Right. And can you tell us a little bit of how this definition of hate crime has changed or evolved over time? Yeah, I think so. that's, that's actually a really important question when we're talking about hate crimes. So one thing that's important to note is that hate crimes as a legal concept didn't even really exist before the 1980s. Right. So in the 1980s is when we first started implementing hate crime legislation in the United States. And that was at the state level. Uh, at the federal level, we didn't see hate crime legislation like actual hate crime legislation beyond you know, tracking hate crime statistics until 2009. So hate crimes as a legal category are relatively new. Where we see the most variation in the definition is actually over space. So in the sense that there's a lot of sp- state to state variation in how hate crimes are defined. And then you see some variation over time within places. So like in Florida, for example, where I'm recording from right now, there's a push to expand the definition of a hate crime to include gender-based crime. Right now, if a crime was committed because of somebody's gender, it wouldn't count as a hate crime in Florida. So there's a lot of variation state to state. Other states do include gender in their hate crime laws, things like that. And gender is included in like the federal definition, correct? Correct. Okay. That's interesting. I didn't realize there was as much variation. Yeah. There's sort of, it makes things really complicated when we start talking about tracking them at the local level and then reporting them at the federal level. Right. And then if memory serves correct, I think there's still three states that don't even have any hate crime legislation, right? Yep. So Wyoming, Arkansas, and South Carolina don't have hate crime legislation. And then Indiana is sort of an, an interesting, they sort of fall in between there. They have a hate crime law that they introduced in the last couple of years, but it doesn't actually enumerate any categories. So it doesn't, it doesn't even say, you know, it doesn't say race, religion, 
and so on. So some of the organizations that keep track of hate crime laws, like the Anti-Defamation League, the ADL, doesn't even recognize Indiana's law as a hate crime law. Wow. Mm. Lots of changes over time and in place. Yep. All right. So as with all types of crime, we know that more crimes, more hate crimes occur than are reported to police. And that's something we'll get into more when we talk about your paper. How many known, in other words, reported hate crimes occur on a yearly basis? So that's a pretty complicated answer when we start talking about hate crime. The most recent official statistics on hate crime released by the FBI a couple of weeks ago indicate roughly 7,700 hate crimes in the last year. But what's really important to note there, like as you alluded to, is that those officially recorded hate crimes are really, by all accounts, a gross underestimate of actual hate crime that's occurring in the United States every year. So data from other sources like the National Crime Victimization Survey actually indicate that rates of victimization are much higher, exceeding more than 200,000 incidents a year. So that's a huge discrepancy. Yeah, it is. And how does that compare then to non-hate crime? Well, I, I think on par. Yeah. So in terms of, so there's sort of two questions there, right? Like compared to actual occurrence, compared to non-hate crimes, hate crimes are, you know, it's a relatively small number. Hate crimes are comparatively rare, but in terms of reporting, we know that the reporting rates in term, like compared to other crime types are quite a bit lower, sort of on par with some of those notoriously underreported crimes like sexual assault. Are there reasons as to why they're so underreported? I think there's a lot to a lot to unpack there. I think one of the biggest one of the biggest reasons is who who hate crimes most commonly target, right? So they're most commonly targeting marginalized communities, black and Hispanic people, Asian people, LGBTQ people. And there are a lot of reasons why those different groups might be reluctant to engage with the police, right? So especially if you were victimized because of your race, that's going to be a really salient factor in your decision-making process post-victimization. And then if you're, you're concerned about potential police racism or something like that, that's just going to be magnified when you're thinking about reporting a hate crime where you were just victimized because of your race. Okay. Yeah. So in one of your recent papers, you discussed that there's an inaccuracy in the amount of hate crime. However, you also mentioned that official hate crime statistics may be inaccurate when they're trying to represent the nature of hate crimes. Can you tell us a little bit more about what exactly you mean by this? Yeah, of course. I I think that's a really important point. So what I mean when I say that, it's actually pretty straightforward. The underreporting and the underrecording of hate crime that we've been talking about, it's not a random process, right? So instead, there are systematic differences in the likelihood of hate crime reporting. There are systematic differences in the likelihood of recording. And if the process of recording and reporting is non-random, then that snapshot that we get from official statistics isn't going to be representative of hate crimes as a whole, right? So we know that in terms of in terms of what the research suggests, we know that the hate crimes that are most likely to be reported and recorded and appear in official statistics are those that fit the stereotypical notions of a, a true or a normal hate crime. So those would be hate crimes that are interpersonal in nature, they're violent in nature, they involve a white offender and a minority victim, and often they have some sort of flag for offender motivation, like slur, like the presence of a slur or hate group membership. But there's a lot of variation in hate crime characteristics, and a lot of hate crimes don't fit that mold. So those hate crimes that don't fit that mold are a lot less likely to appear in official statistics. Can you give some examples of what are types of hate crimes that wouldn't this mold that 
I mean, I think of and that I think a lot of people do. I think it's normal to think of that. That's the kind of that's the kind of hate crime that we that's first off is most apparent, right? Because we have the complicating aspect of a hate crime is that bias motivation. And it's such a unique aspect to a criminal incident in that it's not always apparent, right? So it becomes more apparent when you have those flags like a slur or so on. But we also know that there's a lot of, for example, hate crime that are not committed by white people, minority on minority hate crime, things like that. You know, even in in our research that we're going to talk about today, some of the anti-Asian hate crime was committed by people, by offenders who are identified as Asian. And not all hate crimes fit that mold. You have a lot of variation there. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So our next question is kind of on like the trend of crime over time. So we know based off of official and self-report data that crime has been decreasing over the last couple of decades. Really, it hit this peak in like the 90s and ever since has been going down. And so does the prevalence of hate crime fit this trend or is it different in some way? I think the short answer, so that's actually, that's enough, you know, just because of the things we've been talking about already, it's sort of a complicated question. (laughs) I think the short answer is most hate crime researchers would say no. There's a number of reasons to expect that the prevalence of hate crimes has been increasing over time. The exact nature and change is a lot more successful. But I think the reason that's difficult to assess and something that we, re- we have to remember in particular when we're talking about hate crime statistics is that all official crime statistics are the results of two processes, right? It's actual criminal behavior and then how we respond to that criminal behavior. And that's, that's important to remember for all crimes, but that's really important to remember for hate crimes, just because at the same time that we've seen this rise in official hate crime statistics, you know, our official hate crimes are going up. We've also seen increased awareness of hate crimes. We've seen increased resources. Even if it's not enough, we've seen increased resources for responding to hate crime. And all of those factors are, are likely contributing to that measured increase. Does that hold true then for self-reports too? You might have just said this the and self- I totally missed it. but Yeah, so the self-reports are a little bit more consistent, but we okay. still saw spikes, particularly post-2016. Okay. Okay, so we've Talked a little bit about so you know legislation surrounding hate crimes and sort of what gets defined as a hate crime, but when it comes to sentencing and punishment, are hate crimes punished differently than normal crimes? And if they are, how so? Yeah, hate crimes are most often punished with what we would call a penalty enhancement. So it's essentially you know you get the a sentence commensurate with the the underlying crime. So if you committed a homicide. And then that sentence would be enhanced, you know, depending on the statute by a couple of years or so on, reflecting that additional hate crime element. Right. So, and, you know, listeners of the podcast, I'm sorry that I'm going to say this for probably like the 20th time, but the very first research project that I was involved in as an undergrad was on hate crimes against transgender people. And so during some of the conversations that we had with you know, other sort of professionals and academics in this area, it seemed not everyone was sort of in favor of sentencing enhancements. And one of the things that would get thrown out is because they involve motive, where, you know, there's like a difference between intent and motive, where like if you have like the intent to harm somebody or like premeditated murder, they don't Typically, why you wanted to carry that out doesn't really come into play. Like, it's not a part of the crime. 
Can you tell us a little bit more about this, about this, so to have a motive when, because one of the things that I've heard is like, well, you're already punishing like the actual crime itself. Do we really need to add an enhancement for what motivated the crime? Yeah. So this comes circles back to that additional element, right? So for hate crimes, you know, it's useful to break them down into the two components, right? You have the, anytime, you know, from a prosecutorial viewpoint, you have those two elements. You have to prove the crime. That's exactly what you're talking about. You have to prove the homicide. And then, you know, if you seek that penalty enhancement, you have to, you have to prove the bias motivation. I think you're alluding to just how much of a complicating factor that is. And it really is, right? So that's the reason that we see a lot of, that's one of the reasons that we see so many victims who report being the victim of a hate crime and so few official, officially recorded hate crimes. And that number, that 7,700 would be even smaller if we were, we were talking about convictions, right? Because the prosecutor might still say, yeah, well, we're, we're not going to go after the bias motivation here. So I think that there's sort of two questions, you know, what, if you think about the implications of that, there's sort of, sort of two things to think about. Well, do we need to always seek that additional penalty enhancement? And I think, you know, instances like you're talking about where you already have like premeditated murder, there is that sort of counter argument about, you know, expanding punishment. Do we really need to expand punishment given the current, you know, the current state of, you know, incarceration in America and so on? But then I think some people like to extend that conclusion to, well, then do we need hate crime laws? And I like to push back on that part of the argument, even if I, even if I can see why we might argue that we don't need that additional punishment, because those hate crime laws are so essential if we want to actually keep track of this, this, this sort of phenomenon. And it, without hate crime laws, we, can't, we have no gauge for how often these things are happening in the United States. So I think there's, there's a lot to unpack there. And I don't know if I actually answered your question. I just sort of rambling at this point, but I think it's important to think about all that when you think about that penalty enhancement. Yeah, no, definitely. And I mean, you know, it'd be nice if these issues could just have a straight yes or no answer, right? But unfortunately, they hardly ever do. Yeah. Sociology. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, shall we move into your paper? So the paper we're going to talk about is called, Are Asian Victims Less Likely to Report Hate Crime Victimization to the Police? Implications for Research and Policy in the Wake of the COVID-19 Pandemic. And it was authored by our guest, Brendan, as well as his co-author, Marin Winger? Did I say that right? Winger, yeah. Winger, okay. So to provide a brief summary of this paper, this paper examined differences between Asians and non-Asians in their reporting of victimization to the police within the first couple of months of the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States. Data was obtained using the research firm Cloud Research and a web-based survey administered to 4,188 American adults. The final sample in the study included 997 participants who answered yes to experiencing at least one racially or ethically, ethnically motivated hate crime within the two months preceding the survey. Is that a decent summary of your paper? Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So our first question, one that we ask every single person who comes on the podcast, is what was the motivation behind writing this paper? Yeah, good question. So I think especially early in the pandemic and sort of throughout the pandemic, we've seen a lot of attention to various reports about increasing hate crimes towards the Asian population. One of the things I think a lot about in my own research is what happens after victimization. 
before we count something as a hate crime and seek a hate crime conviction, that sort of the in-between stage. I think a lot about the victim's decision-making processes and, and sort of what happens after that. So we saw a lot of focus on the frequency of victimization without much attention to the sort of the consequences of victimization and very little attention to, to help-seeking patterns during the pandemic. So we've been focusing a lot of our attention there lately, and not only in this paper, but in, in several other papers that we or projects that we have ongoing. So for this particular paper, we know from some limited research on other crime types that there's some, there's some documented reluctance for help-seeking among the Asian community. And we thought that examining and documenting those patterns for hate crime victimization specifically was something important to do. Okay, so we want to provide a little, a little bit of background. And so when COVID-19 sort of started to really take a hold and you know, we started de- declaring it a, a global pandemic, the FBI or the Federal Bureau of Investigations, they issued a warning, right, on that we might see an increase in hate crimes against Asian Americans. And unfortunately, it seemed to come to fruition. And we even saw the COVID-19 Hate Crime Act passed by Congress. Can you talk to us a little bit about why the FBI put out a warning about an increase in hate crimes against Asian Americans, what the increase looked like, and sort of maybe tell us a little bit more about what this Hate Crimes Act entails? Sure. So that's a couple of different questions. So I'm going to try to go through each. And if, if, I, if I skip something, just let me know and I'll, I'll come back to it. Okay. So I think we've seen a lot of we've seen a lot of racism and xenophobia during the pandemic. Uh, the problem is that xenophobia has been situated within a long history of racist stereotypes linking the Asian population to disease. The World Health Organization explicitly has guidelines for best practices in naming infectious diseases. They state that disease names should not include geographic locations and similar similar characteristics because they want to avoid negative consequences like a backlash against members of particular ethnic communities. Many people ignored that, including prominent politicians and disparagingly referred to the disease as things like the China virus anyway. And we know that that sort of rhetoric, you know, it's pretty well documented in the hate crime literature that that sort of rhetoric has a legitimization effect and has the potential to embolden would-be hate crime offenders to act on their bigotry. So I think that that kind of rhetoric is a primary reason why we saw the FBI come out with their warning. In terms of the nature of that increase. A lot of the initial evidence was anecdotal. It was a prominent media report here and there. That was sort of one of the one of the motivations for our research was to try to systematically measure what was going on. And in our research, we do see that a significant proportion of the Asian community is indicating some experiences. So we tried to measure those experiences in a variety of ways, discrimination, bias-motivated victimization. But we also, you know, we saw we saw a fair amount of that. We saw it up to the level of serious aggravated assault involving weapon use. You know, people were indicating that kind of victimization. But we also saw that a lot of Asian Americans early in the pandemic were indicating some level of fear, even if they weren't indicating that they were being victimized. They were afraid of being victimized. So they were changing their behavior in a number of ways. They were leaving the house less, not just because they were, you know, isolating but or quarantining, but because they were afraid of what might happen. Or they were, a number of them indicated that they were just preparing for insults when they left the house. So we saw, you know, a wide ranging impact on the Asian community, not just in terms of actual victimization, but in terms of those broader, you know, the fear of victimization, knowing somebody who's been victimized, and so on. I think I covered the first two questions. I think we also asked about the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act. 
So that act did a couple of things. One of the primary purposes of it was to just expedite review of COVID-19 related hate crimes. Those hate crimes, you know, as we're documenting in our research are a real issue right now. So I think that there's always, it's always important to acknowledge with an act like this, that it wasn't enacted until later in the pandemic. A lot of its impact is largely symbolic. It's when us. Was, sorry to so interrupt what? you, but when was the act actually implemented? I'd have to look up the exact date, but it wasn't implemented until earlier this year. So nearly oh, wow. a year after okay. the pandemic started. So, I mean, the goal was to expedite handling the handling of hate crimes. And I think that one of the more important aspects of the Hate Crime Act was to establish online reporting options, which, you know, related to what we're going to be talking to about today, they were available in multiple languages. So they helped to deal that sort of approach, you know, if implemented effectively can help to deal with some of those structural barriers to reporting, like language issues. So I think it's important to keep in mind that, you know, the act is important because even even a symbolic effect can be important. It, a symbolic con- condemnatory effect is important, right? It says, you know, we're not okay with what's happening right now. But, you know, I think it's also important that a lot of the, to acknowledge that a lot of the issues that that COVID-19 hate crime act is trying to address are systemic issues with hate crime data across the board. And they've been an issue for, for years prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. So maybe baby steps to baby steps. trying yeah, to fix this steps. larger yeah. problem. Yep. Recognizing right. it as an issue is the first step. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you started to talk about this a little bit already, Brendan, but what kinds of explanations have been proposed as to why hate crimes against Asian Americans increased during the pandemic? I'm going to talk about a couple. I think there's a sort of a general impact. We know that when fear increases, prejudice increases. That's pretty well documented. You know, so we saw we saw a heightened fear, especially at the very beginning of the pandemic, when there was this just the magnitude and scope of what was going on. You know, people people were shook and experienced a lot of fear. And I think that unfortunately, often that fear gets directed at outgroups. So there's that sort of general effect. I think more specifically, the role of political legitimization can't be ignored, right? So yeah, it's pretty well documented that when, you know, when we have widespread political or widespread rhetoric that's directed at a particular group, it's not uncommon for spikes in hate crimes to follow. So I think that those two things sort of, it was unfortunately a, a perfect combination for seeing spikes in, in anti-Asian hate crime. Right. So in your paper, one of the things that you mentioned and, you know, this sort of extends and you make the point to say that it's not just related to hate crime, but just across the board, there tends to be a lot of crime that goes unreported, sort of this dark figure of crime. Can you tell us a little bit more about what we mean when we say the dark figure? And then the other thing that you mentioned is that we see variation across different groups, but especially among Asian Americans. Why do we see this variation, especially with that group? Yeah, I think, you know, the dark figure of crime just is really referring to that, that chunk of crime that we're, we're unable to measure. And a pretty, you know, something that I focus on a lot in my research is the way that reporting impacts that dark figure of crime, right? How much does that victim decision making process impact that figure? And we know that a lot of crimes are not reported. There are some crimes in particular where reporting rates are particularly low. Sexual assault, hate crime come to mind as as sort of the perfect examples of those low reporting rates. 
Part of the reason that we see that for hate crimes in particular, I've touched on it a little bit, is that there are reasons that those people who are most commonly targeted as hate crime victims might be especially reluctant to engage with the police. And that's not just true of Asian people. I mean, we, we focus on Asian people in our paper. Members of the Black community, you know, they may be reluctant to engage with the police, given the larger backdrop of, of racism among the police and, and poor police community relations. The LGBTQ community has reason to suspect or fear homophobia should they engage with the police, but also the additional, you know, concerns about the public nature of pursuing criminal proceedings, especially if someone's not not out. But the Asian population in particular, we focus on, I think, a couple of the reasons that are worth focusing on there that first, the structural barriers, right? We don't have the we didn't have the ability in our paper to disentangle further by native versus non-native status, but about half of our respondents were not were not native. So there are likely language barriers that are functioning to to impact some of this. But then there are also, you know, there's obviously a lot of variation within the Asian community, but there there are cultural norms among some Asian groups, particularly centered around privacy and self-sufficiency and not help-seeking. And I think those two those things are operating together here to, to suppress reporting rates. Okay, so then I think that kind of sets up the paper pretty well. I mean, the front end of your paper. So let's start to kind of get into the findings then. So when it comes to some of the findings from your paper, found that compared to white victims, Blacks and Hispanics were not significantly different in their reporting patterns, but Asians were significantly less likely to report being victimized to the police. So along the lines of everything that we've been talking about, really. However, we did find it kind of surprising that Blacks and Hispanics were not more similar to this Asian group in regard in this regard, because at least... Jose and I believe, and I think you've mentioned it, Blacks and Hispanics are also less likely to report to the police for a variety of reasons. Why do you think you didn't find more similarity between Blacks and Hispanics with Asians? I think that's a really important point, and I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. So you're obviously alluding to the expectation that Black and Hispanic people should be less likely to report just because of concerns about racism, poor perceptions mm-hmm. of the police, poor, poor police community relations. I, I agree. I think what's really important to remember, though, is that when a victim's deciding whether or not to report a crime to the police, those concerns about racism and poor treatment, they may be a really important factor in the decision, but, but they're not the only factor. And one of the ways we've thought about this is, you know, there's a significant body of research showing that disadvantaged communities, which are frequently disproportionately Black and Hispanic in their racial ethnic comp- composition, sometimes also lack access to effective mechanisms of informal social control. So in the absence of informal social control, it's sometimes necessary to turn, turn to formal social control, like the police, to get help, even if one doesn't necessarily trust them. And I'm going to plug some other research that I have going on, on here, if that's okay. Yeah, go for it. So we have, we have an ongoing research project looking at exactly this issue, because you know, one of the interesting things in the literature is that you know, it's, not universally, it's not a universal finding that Black and Hispanic people are less likely to report to the police. And one author referred to it as the, the paradox of, of crime reporting. Like why, why are we not seeing that? So we've dug into that a bit in our own research. And we argue that because of those different, sometimes opposing forces, like concerns about racism, also being coupled with, you know, lack of other help sources, it's important to look at heterogeneity in reporting decisions. So especially by the nature of the effects. So in our research, which is in the review process right now, we basically 
disaggregate those reporting decisions by offense severity. And I can get into the details there if anyone's interested, but essentially we disaggregate, we create a measure of severity and we disaggregate and look at racial differences in reporting. And when we do that, we see that among black victims, there is some indication that, that they're less likely to report victimization to the police in line with that idea of reluctance. But when it's more severe, they're actually more likely even than white victims to report that victimization to the police. So I think that, you know, we don't have, an, we don't have a, a precise measure of the mechanisms there, but I think that that suggests that there's, you know, some combination of reluctance and a lack of informal social control sort of acting jointly. So those decisions, you know, they're really complex. And I think a lot of different factors weigh into that decision. So sometimes we see Black and Hispanic victims reporting more, possibly because of needing to get help and not having other resources. Does that make sense? Yeah. So then the argument would be that Asian Americans would have more informal mechanisms of control versus Blacks and Hispanics. If you were to extend that to Asian victims, I think that that would... That would be the extension of the argument. Yeah. Okay. That, that paper doesn't have the, I mean, we don't have the ability to sort of extend it to Asian. It's a different sample, you know, some complications there in terms of looking at them all at the same time, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. I think that's yeah really interesting to bring up because I think it's a lot of us sort of like the papers we read, they're usually dealing with like aggregate data. So you kind of just get like the group as a whole, but yeah, like these groups aren't monoliths, right? Like, yeah. So, yeah, I guess it just sort of never truly occurred to me that sometimes your only recourse is to turn to the police. Like, what else are you yeah. gonna do? But yeah, when yeah, when you when you frame it that way, I think it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think so. I think it's just really important to think about, you know, well, what is the alternative? You know, and if those alternatives aren't there, sometimes you don't have a choice. Right. Yeah. And I, and yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in, in reading this, this new paper you're working on. All right. I'll send it. I'll send it your way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hopefully the review process goes smoothly. Yeah. Fingers crossed. <laughs> okay. So another one of your findings, and this it was in your supplementary analysis. And so, what you ended up doing was you, so in the sort of main analysis, your recall period was one to two months before COVID-19. And then, but for your supplemental, you pushed that to one to two years. And you found that this underreporting sort of trend held pretty true even before COVID. So can you talk to us about whether there was any impact of COVID-19 and hate crime reporting? And if there was, what was that impact? Or was it significant? Yeah. So what we wanted to do there was try to, you know, an imperfect approach because, you know, our sample size was limited, but we wanted to try to disaggregate what aspect of this is like an overall Asian effect. To what extent are Asian people just less likely to report victimization versus how much of this is attributable to the pandemic itself? So we thought that by sort of, you know, looking at those different recall periods, we might be able to disentangle that a little bit. It's in a supplementary analysis because it's, you know, it's not exact. It's just a way of thinking about it. But, you know, we do see that overall, we do see that overall Asian effect. So we, we think that it is, you know, not a COVID specific effect. 
But we also do see some direct effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on hate crime or on hate crime reporting. I'm hesitant to make a huge deal of those at this point because there's, you know, we saw that the perceptions of risk were associated with reporting papers. So people who perceived, you know, more personal risk to themselves in the COVID-19 pandemic were actually more likely to report their victimization. So we're hesitant to make any you know, sort of broad-based conclusions off of that because, it, you know, we didn't have specific hypotheses there. And I don't know of other people doing that research right now, but I do think it's important to keep in mind the potential impact of the pandemic, not just on crime. And there's a lot of conversation about that right now, a lot of conversation about, you know, how did the COVID-19 pandemic impact, you know, domestic violence or impact crime generally, so on. Those conversations are important to have, but I think that what we really wanted to be the takeaway was, you know, we can't stop there. We have to also ask ourselves, you know, whether or not reporting behavior has been impacted too, because if it's impacting reporting, you know, that's impacting our assessment of overall crime rates, especially when most of those, most of the research is relying on official data to make those, to make, come to those conclusions, right? So we wanted to just, you know, sort of get people thinking about this, this issue at this point, you know, we don't have any sort of broad-based conclusions to draw at this point, because it's, it's sort of a, we didn't hypothesize it and we, we don't have, you know, we didn't have specific expectations there, but the idea that the pandemic itself could impact reporting, I think is something that that's important to think about. Right. Are there any other key findings that you would like to discuss that maybe we haven't talked about yet? I think we covered most of them. The the findings of that paper are relatively straightforward. We just, we see that, you know, Asian people are, are less likely to report hate crime victimization than than other people. And it doesn't appear to be attributable to anything specific about those, those crimes. Okay. So then can you discuss the implications your study may have kind of thinking a for like the academic community and then also for the general public policymakers, practitioners, so forth? Yeah. I think in terms of like, in, in terms of the, the most direct implications, I think the most obvious implication is for our measurement of anti-Asian hate crime both during the pandemic and moving forward, and just victimization of the Asian community in general. Our results suggest that, that those estimates might be suppressed. They might actually be an underestimation of the true extent of the problem. So I think thinking about that and thinking about ways for policymakers and so on to possibly increase reporting, I think things like online reporting options are an important first step, but you know that it also means other ways to reduce those structural barriers to reporting might be beneficial. I also think it's important to think about, you know, I mentioned Asian American victimization more broadly. I, th- I think it's, that's a really understudied phenomenon. I think from a re- research perspective, you know, that group is among the fastest growing population groups in the country. And we know very little about it, about the specific reactions to victimization and so on. So I think moving forward, it's really important to start focusing on Asian American victimization in our research. One last thing that I want to touch on on the paper, I just thought about it, and you've mentioned it a couple of times, but your methods for this paper, I thought were really unique using kind of this research firm, Cloud Research, which I've never heard of before, and then the web-based survey. Was that primarily to try and get a larger sample size or a better sample? Can you just talk a little bit about this for people who may be interested in using data like this? Yeah. So I think the hardest thing, so, I mean, we approached it that way 
because the hardest thing with studying hate crime victimization in the United States is its comparative rarity, right? So, and, and this is true for any sort of rare phenomenon. If you just take a population survey of, you know, a convenience sample or something like that, you're not going to have the ability to look at what you want to look at. And for hate crime victimization, we had to we had to think of a couple of different things when we were when we were rolling out the survey. Basically, we we had to make sure that the the sample was large enough that we were going to you know not everyone experiences a hate crime victimization. If we want to look at victimization outcomes, we need to have a sample large enough to actually be able to measure that. And then we had to think about who's being victimized most frequently. So for us, that meant oversampling racial ethnic minorities to really be focusing on the population of interest rather than, you know, ending up with a predominantly white sample that hasn't experienced a lot of hate crime victimization. And then in terms of, you know, rolling it out web-based, that was a matter of, we were two months into the pandemic. We thought this was a really important issue to be assessing. And that was the most expedient way to measure it while it was happening. Yeah. It's cool. I'm going to have to look a little bit more into it because I think it's an interesting way to do survey research. Yeah. Cool. Okay. I have a question that's a little more sort of hate crime research in general. It sort of clicked when you mentioned measurement. And can you tell us about maybe some of the concerns that may come up with doing like self-report hate crime research? I'm mainly sort of kind of going back to like that motive part of a hate crime and I guess, like, what are the risks that someone may say, I've been the victim of a hate crime, but without really knowing that that was the, like, the underlying motive for the victimization? Yeah, I think you're actually touching on something really important there. So if somebody was motivated at some point, they could do a really important study on this. I don't know of one that, that exists, but I think that the most important thing is, given what we know about hate crime, you can't just say, were you the victim of a hate crime, Right. So if you ask somebody if they were the victim of a hate crime, there's going to be a lot of confusion. There's going to be people that say, well, no, I mean, that, that thing happened, but that wasn't a hate crime. You know, the way we approach it is to say specifically, did you experience, were you the victim of a crime? So you're getting at that first element. And then you're asking, did this crime occur because of your race, religion, ethnicity? So in our case, we say race, ethnicity. And by measuring those two elements, you're, de- you're, you're definitionally measuring a hate crime, even if the, the, the person wouldn't have said, oh, that's definitely a hate crime. You're, you're getting around the sort of differential perceptions issue. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think, yeah, that, that sounds like a, like a good approach. So like a two-step approach. Would you ever ask for like confirmation? So maybe like a third question, like, like, well, how do you know that it was because of this? I think that's a, that's a good question. So we only had 20 minutes. <laughs> so we had, right. we had a limited, <laughs> we had limited space on our survey. I, I wish that we had asked, had the space to ask something like that. The NCVS does do that. So we sort of modeled our question after the NCVS. Then the NCVS in two, 2000, I want to say 2010, but that's worth checking. In 2010, the NCVS implemented additional questions, basically asking exactly what you're getting at. So saying, you know, what was the evidence for that? And then they, they provide different options. Was there a slur? Things like that. Did the police say it was a hate crime? So there is some difference there if you start, you know, digging into the evidence in the NCBS data. We didn't have right. space to do that. 
yeah no yeah this was more of like a a general question but yeah thank you yeah okay one follow-up question to go off of that and then and then we'll keep going but i'm just curious obviously reporting is a big factor here but have any studies looked at like the overlap between what people are perceiving and self-reporting as a hate crime versus what's officially characterized as a hate crime to see if there's there is an overlap or if there's like a complete difference to where officially it's not a hate crime, but people will say that it is a hate crime to them. I think, you know, people have tried to get at that in roundabout ways. So that exact comparison is difficult to make because those things are happening in different data sources. So I think people have tried to say, tried to look at characteristics that, you know, so we have survey data that says, you know, that some people have conducted that says that, you know, these are the factors that people associate with a hate crime. And then we have official data and we've, you know, myself and some other people have conducted studies where we're looking at those characteristics that have been identified in survey research and saying, how often are they associated with case with, you know, an actual hate crime conviction? So people have tried to do that in that sort of two-step process. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. But but doing it in the same in the same data set is really difficult. I think you know Jose mentioned that the measurement issue, and I thought, oh, you know, maybe I'm giving away a research idea here. But you know, a, <laughs> a, a survey, you know, a survey where you asked it two different ways and randomly assigned it would be fascinating. You know, you mm-hmm. you ask them because of, and then you ask them whether they're a victim of a hate crime, and you have you have a fascinating study. Yeah, that'd be super interesting. So <laughs> someone someone get on that. okay well how about we so zoom out on google earth a little bit and take this discussion into international waters and so you and your co-author wesley myers have a paper that was published in 2020 in the british journal of criminology called reporting racist hate crime victimization to police in the united states and the united kingdom a cross-national comparison And so based on your work and or others' works, are hate crimes an international or sort of global phenomenon, or is this really like a U.S. unique to the United States? Yeah, that's a good question. Hate crimes, I mean, hate crimes as a concept are absolutely an international issue. Their measurement and definition is very country specific. So the study that you you were talking about, we were able to facilitate a comparison by using survey data that asked the question very similarly across countries. But if we were to use legal definitions, it would have been a lot more difficult. There is more similarity in certain countries. So you see the overwhelming majority of the research on the subject is focused on the US, the UK, and Australia to some degree. So as a concept, hate crimes are absolutely a global issue. But in terms of their measurement and definition, it tends to be very country specific. Can you talk a little bit about like the conceptualization differences, whether that, I mean, you just want to focus on the U.S. versus the U.K. or other places? Yeah. You know, so like I said, the basic idea of a hate crime is is similar across countries mm-hmm. and the precise definition is very different across countries. So in the U.S., I mean, as we all know, and I'm sure everyone listening knows, the idea of free speech is sort of this golden paramount ideal that means that you know, we tend to define hate crime a little bit more narrowly than other countries. So there are several countries, for example, where hate crime or related legislation makes it criminal to deny the Holocaust. So Holocaust denial is illegal. That would never happen in the United States because 
because of notions of free speech. However offensive, that kind of thing is protected under free speech. There are important differences that I think are worth honing in on in terms of identification between countries. So one of the most fascinating differences when we talk about the US-UK is the approach to identification. So in the US, hate crime identification is very police-centered, right? So the victim can report that they were likely that they were the victim of a crime and that they think it's a hate crime. But that determination is ultimately up to the police. In the UK, they take a victim-centered approach. Mm. So if the victim says this was a hate crime, the crime is treated as such. That's a very different mm. approach. And it, it results in likely in differences in terms of perceptions of the victims, in terms of how their cases were handled and things like that. Yeah, that seems like a major difference, actually. And I, yeah. I mean, I'm so used to studying the United States, so I like never would have even thought that that was something that was happening elsewhere. Yeah. And then do other countries have these sentencing enhancements for hate crimes like in the United States and like we've talked about? Yeah. So in the UK, you know, you see sentencing enhancements, but you also see, you know, in some of the European countries, you see standalone offenses standalone statutes that are specifically built around hate crimes. So like Holocaust denial, things like that. So there's a lot of country variation across countries. I know more about the sentencing process in the US, but there's a lot of variation there. Based on the paper that we talked about in in BJC, where you compared the, the US to the United Kingdom, what can you tell us about hate crime reporting and whether it's similar or different across these two places? Yeah. So basically we went back to 2003 because that's, you know, that's how far back our U.S. data went. And we looked at the likelihood of reporting hate crime victimization in both in both countries. And we saw that the likelihood of reporting hate crime victimization in the U.S. has been decreasing in contrast to the U.K. where we actually see increases. The one exception to that pattern is among Black hate crime victims in the U.S., which is also, you know, I think interestingly enough, where we see an increased likelihood of case clearance and stuff in the U.S., a lot of it linking back to stereotypical notions of what a hate crime is. I just think that, you know, perceptions of what a hate crime is impact the likelihood that it's handled effectively and so on. So those, I don't think it's surprising that we see that those victims are the most likely to report hate crimes to the police. I think what's really alarming is if you think about those patterns, if you think about you know, the decreasing patterns in the United States, and you couple that with what we know about official statistics, I think that's when you, you see a pretty alarming picture. So officially reported hate crimes, like what we're seeing in the FBI are increasing. And then we see in, in, these, in the NCBS data that the tendency to report hate crime is decreasing. And if you take those two patterns together, it means that the magnitude of those recent increases in hate crimes are likely much larger than what they appear to be in the official statistics. And I think that that's that's something that's really important to think about. Yeah. I was actually just going to ask that and how it compares to like the UK. Do you know how their like official reports are versus if their reporting is increasing? I don't know about trends in their official okay. reports. There are people I could point you to if you really wanted the answer that might know a little bit more about that than me. Okay. I was just curious. I think that, so in the, in the UK... In the early 2000s, there was something called the Stephen Lawrence Inquiry, which was centered around the really poor handling of racist crime that occurred in the UK at the time. And then there was investigation and all kinds of you know, policies that were implemented that were intended to increase hate crime reporting and things like that and the handling of hate crimes. And that's when that sort of victim-centered approach started to take focus and, and things like that. And we haven't, we haven't seen those same sort of 
systemic efforts to make change in the United States. And it's a lot more difficult to make systemic changes in the United States because of that state-by-state variation that we mentioned right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, that's like all of our main questions for you. Is there anything else that you'd like to add on hate crimes? Anything that's important for us and others to know that we didn't touch on? Oh, I think we I think we talked about to, about a lot today. I don't I don't yeah. know that I have anything grand to add at the end, I, but I enjoyed our conversation. Okay. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Brendan. It's been great having you. As far as where people can find you, if they want to know more, email, Twitter, other social media, etc. Yeah, sure. My email is blance at fsu.edu. You know what? I forget my Twitter handle, but I do have one. Let's see. <laughs> it's okay. We can post it on our website, right. but you yep. do have Twitter. Okay. I do. Yes. Yeah. All right. And then besides the paper that you kind of plugged earlier that's under review, is there anything else related to this topic that you'd like to plug or tell people about? I mean, we have a lot of ongoing research right now, in, in especially in terms of hate crime. We just received funding, myself, along with Dr. Pietkowska here at FSU, to start looking at geographic variation in in hate crime reporting in the United States. So, you know, that's in early stages, but I, I think we'll have some interesting stuff coming out of that in the next couple of years. Cool. Yeah, based off of our discussion, that seems incredibly important to look at. So cool that you received funding. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you again. Yeah, thank you very much. It's fun. The Criminology Academy is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Crim Academy. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please rate, review, and subscribe. Alternatively, let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. And lastly, share the Crim Academy episodes with your friends and family.